Well, good morning again, everybody. Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary. Today, we are going to continue with our series on resilience. But today, I want to speak specifically to an aspect of resilience that becomes incredibly important as we begin to meet the traumas and the difficulties that arise in our communities when difficulties and hardships come about. Up to this point, I've been talking to you a lot about relationships. We spent three weeks unpacking the idea of relationships and how relationships are key to our ability to not only survive, but thrive after difficult and traumatic events. Today, I wanna do is talk a little bit about one particular aspect of faith that is required of us if we're going to be people who not only bounce back and demonstrate spiritual resilience after difficult times, but also become the kinds of people who can make a difference for others as well. So I want to read three passages to you today and explore a little bit of how this is important for what's going on in our world in the United States right now. And before we do that, would you just join with me in a word of prayer? Dear God, we thank you again for this opportunity to come together across Facebook, across YouTube. We're grateful for the chance to be connected to each other, even though we are physically distant during this COVID pandemic. We pray, God, that you would be with all of those out there who are touched by this disease. We pray that you would be close to those whose loved ones have been lost. God, we're all cognizant of the fact that this week we crossed a gruesome milestone, 100,000 Americans now having died from COVID-19. That's a difficult number for us to wrap our minds around. And so our hearts go out to those who are suffering with the grief and the anguish of lives that were lost and the very real likelihood that not all of those lives had to be lost. So we pray, God, today that as we approach these scriptures, as we bring our hearts to you and worship, as we ask that you would teach us today what it means to follow after you, we pray that you would teach us to become people who are not only resilient in our own selves, but that we would become people who can make a difference in the world that is coming, the world that will need to be repaired again after so much devastation. We ask, Lord, that you would make us wise and deep people who are able to meet the challenges ahead, even in our little corner of North San Diego County. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we started today, of course, saying a prayer for uh, three individuals who were killed recently Uh, in a way that has really horrified and captured the attention of so many of us. It feels to me like we have been dealing with a a fresh realization of what has been there all along. And of course, what I'm talking about is the, the curse of racism in our country, the curse of racism in our communities. Earlier today, I was talking to uh, one of our staffers, Luke, and We were talking about how suddenly COVID-19 just in the past week to 10 days seems to have receded in uh, the minds of Americans everywhere as we have been grappling with the horrific images that have come about because of the killings of Ahmed Arbery and George Floyd and Stephen Taylor. 
and how that's brought up fresh memories of so many other people in the black community who have been so conspicuously killed and murdered unjustly. And for those of us uh, like myself who, who don't know what it's like uh, to go out every day and to fear for our lives, to be afraid for our lives, if for some reason we see a police officer, we get pulled over for rolling through a stop sign or driving a little bit too fast. You know, we watch these images with grief and horror and I think one of the really hard things is that uh, for those of us who have been privileged to not have those experiences because of the color of our skin or because of the circumstances of our birth, we struggle, I think, to know how to respond or how to react. And I think the common response to that is defensiveness. I hear a lot of people who are white like me responding defensively when they see videos posted that depict the uh, horrific killings of black men or women or children. And it, it seems almost like the first reflex is to make excuses for it. The first reflex is to blame those who are killed or murdered and to defend our own, what we perceive to be our own lack of privilege, to claim that, you know, whatever racism occurs in our world, it's not our doing. We're not racist. We aren't benefiting from the effects of slavery so long ago in our past, or even the denial of civil rights to generations back during the civil rights era. So many people, it seems, who are like me and white like me want to believe the idea that those problems are really behind us as a nation. So many people like me who are white like me seem to want to buy into the fantasy that much of these problems are created by the people who are obviously and clearly to me victims of a system of oppression and racism. And so today I wanna to speak directly to that. And I wanna connect that to what we've been talking about regarding resilience over the past several weeks, because I think the, this subject of resilience is directly relevant to our culture and our society and even to our communities like here in Oceanside or in North County, I think that if we're going to survive as a nation, if we're gonna survive as a society, we have to develop deep reserves of resilience as white people who are able and ready and willing to engage in the hard conversations that will be required if we're going to eliminate racism and racial violence in our lifetimes, and I think we can and I think God is calling us to that. So I wanna start by just picking up where we left off last week. What I'm gonna to do today is I wanna to read to you three passages very briefly from the Bible. And these passages may not seem related to you, but I wanna share with you how I think they're related and how I think they apply to this situation. I wanna start by reading to you from Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight, and I read you this passage last week. So this is sort of our starting point for today. I wanna to pick up where we left off last week. Philippians chapter two, verse four. I'm actually gonna begin in verse four. If you wanna turn with me in your Bibles, you can read it with me, or we'll put it up on the screen as well. It says this, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this passage I told you last week is a kind of high Christology. It reflects early in the Christian life the development of a theology about Jesus that takes a very high form. And by high, what I mean is that Paul, the writer of this letter, has come to the place in his thinking about God where he sees Christ as participating in the Godhead. That is, Christ is a part of what we commonly in the church have now come to call the Trinity, this eternal, everlasting relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit of God who are all interrelated, interdependent, engaging with each other in a kind of self-giving act of love for eternity. Paul sees Jesus as participating in that relationship. And last week I told you that we are invited into that same quality of relationship, that same quality of interdependence. And you might remember that I said that the word, the Greek word that's used in here in verse seven, that we render in your Bible as, but emptied himself. When Paul says that Christ emptied himself and became humbled even to death on a cross, The word that's used there is kenosis, which is a Greek word which means literally to pour out completely. Last week I told you that that is essentially what we are called to do here in Philippians chapter 2, that we are called to pour ourselves out completely for each other in love because that is the very nature of God. Now I want to read to you a second passage that I think picks up a similar theme but it takes a little bit different approach. This passage is actually 2 Corinthians verse eight. And some of you have heard me preach from this passage before. It's one of my favorite passages. This is also Paul the apostle writing a letter, this time to the the Christians who live in Corinth. And he's asking them to give money. He's asking them to give generously. He's asking them to contribute to the needs of the church in Jerusalem where the believers in Christ, the followers in Christ in Jerusalem are suffering horribly under terrible conditions there. They're poor and they're persecuted because of their following after Christ. And Paul then appeals to the other churches that are scattered throughout Asia Minor and Corinth is one of those. So Paul's job here is to kind of raise money from amongst these wealthier churches in Asia Minor to help alleviate the suffering of Christians back in Jerusalem. I wanna pick it up in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, and read this passage to you because it's another vivid depiction of what we're talking about. Verse 8 says this, I do not say this as a command, but I'm testing the genuineness of your love against the eagerness of others. Now, Paul here is saying to them, I want you to give, I'm asking you to give, I'm inviting you to give, but I'm not commanding you to give. Rather, I'm testing your eagerness. I'm testing the genuineness of your desire to give. And then he hits them pretty hard with this amazing theological statement about Christ. So verse nine, he says this, for you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now, he is, of course, asking for money, but what he's doing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is he is appealing to the very same exact nature in Christ that he was talking about in his letter to the Philippians. He sees in Jesus, in the incarnation of God, in the 
the pouring out of God into humanity, he sees the defining act of who God is and what God's character is. And here, in 2 Corinthians 8, he characterizes that as God in Christ becoming poor so that we might become rich. And there it is. There's that self-giving act of kenosis, that self-giving act of pouring God's self out completely for us. I want to pause there and flip over very briefly to one last passage I want to read to you. Uh, This particular passage actually comes from Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1, is a very familiar parable. It's actually called the the parable of uh, the laborers in the vineyard. And most of you have heard this story if you were raised in church, if you grew up in church. In fact, I'm willing to bet this is probably one of those parables that has always really troubled you or puzzled you because this is one of those parables that tends to sort of pull at our sense of fairness and trouble us because Jesus seems to be indicating that God is sort of essentially unfair at times in the way that he operates. And so I don't want to read this whole parable. It's a bit of a longer parable. But if you will skip ahead for me, essentially what we have is we're going to pick it up in uh, verse 13. But before, what we have in this parable is Jesus describing a landowner uh, or a homeowner who gets up early in the morning and he has a vineyard full of grapevines that he needs uh, to be harvested. And so he goes into town early in the morning, crack of dawn, and he goes and he finds some laborers and he brings them to the field and he negotiates them for a particular rate of pay. Uh, Jesus's parable calls it a denarius, right? So, so the owner and the laborers agree to a denarius for a day's pay and they begin working. Well, a few hours later, middle of the morning, the laborer looks out or the owner of the vineyard looks out and he realizes these laborers are not going to get the job done. I need more laborers. So he goes back into town and he finds some more laborers who are in need of work, probably around nine or 10 o'clock. And he says to them, hey, come and work for me. And they negotiate for them to be paid a denarius for their day's work. He brings them back, puts them to work in the field and off they go. A few hours later in the middle of the day, he has the same problem. He sees again that the work isn't going to get done. So he goes back into town. He hires more laborers. He brings them back. You know the story, right? He hires multiple shifts of laborers early in the day and in the middle of the day. And then late in the day, he gets more laborers and he brings them back. And at the end of the day, the whole job is done and everybody comes to him for their pay. And everybody, the laborers who came first thing in the morning, the laborers who came in the middle of the day, and the laborers who came at the end of the day, they all received a full day's pay. Now, that's the part of this parable I think that tends to bother us. Because I think if we're honest, we would say, you know, if I worked all day long and then I was promised a certain amount for a day's pay, and then somebody came during the last hour and worked and they got paid for a full day's pay, I'd be pretty upset too. I would say that's not fair. But Jesus depicts the landowner doing exactly that. Now, if you'll turn to verse 13, I want to pick it up there. So, of course, the laborers who came earlier were frustrated and angry Uh, But he replied to them, that is the landowner, verse 13, replied to one of them and said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I gave to you. 
Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, this parable is sometimes characterized as a parable of salvation. That is, you know, oftentimes it's taught as though, you know, God is the landowner and we are the workers in the field and some workers come earlier and some workers come later, but God gives everybody the same amount. And that same amount is, of course, the same reward that we get when we, we die and we go to heaven. It doesn't matter if you're saved early in life. It doesn't matter if you're saved in the middle of your life. It doesn't matter if you're saved on your deathbed. The grace of God means that everybody gets the same eternal reward. But I tend to think that this parable has less to do with our eternal salvation and has more to do with what is practical here and now. Jesus' hearers are not concerned with what's going to happen to them after they die. They are concerned with what is going to happen to them right now, this day, here and now. And Jesus is saying something important to them that I think we see echoed in Paul's passages that I read before. Jesus is saying to them that those who have more, those who have more than they need, are supposed to give generously of what they have so that those who are in need will have enough. You see, all three of these stories essentially reveal the character, not only of God, but the character of the kingdom of God. And therefore, they're supposed to reveal the character of those of us who consider ourselves to be followers of Christ. Specifically, those of us who have extra, those of us who have more, those of us who have more than enough to provide for those who have less, ought to, kenosis, pour ourselves out for those who are suffering, those who are struggling, and those who are in need of relief. Now, I think that this is more than generosity. I think generosity is usually what we, what we call this kind of act of self-giving or self-emptying. And it is generosity, of course. But see, this kind of generosity is more than just giving like 10% of the big paycheck that you got so that the church can get a little bit of a tithe or an offering. It's, it's more than taking a, a, a token of some huge reward that you receive so that you can give a bit to charity. Rather, kenosis is self-emptying, self-giving, utterly pouring yourself out for the good of others. And I think that's more than generosity. That is putting yourself in a position of need so that those who are in need can be relieved. That, I think, takes a lot more than generosity. I think that takes courage. I think one of the reasons why we read passages like this and we tend not to follow them is frankly because we're afraid to, because we grow comfortable with our riches. We grow comfortable with our comfort. And we don't want to part with it. We don't want to give it up. But God has demonstrated for us a different kind of approach. God in Christ has demonstrated for us that the key to human salvation is that we would be willing to utterly give ourselves up for others. And in that way, I think the parable of the workers in the vineyard really is 
a story about salvation. I love uh, what this uh, month's book club book author says about this parable. This is Short Stories by Jesus by Amy Jill Levine. Our book club is reading this book now. To those who ask today, are you saved? Jesus might well respond, the better question is, do your children have enough to eat? Or do you have shelter for the night? This parable helps us ask more pressing, more visceral questions. I would agree, and I would say that for us today, maybe the more pressing question is not just, do your children have enough to eat? Although that is an important question. Uh, Or do you have shelter or a place to sleep? Although that is a critically important question for a great many people in our community. I would say that today, here and now, the more pressing question for us, for people like me, for people who are white like me, in the face of the very public killings and lynchings that we are seeing of black men and women and children, I think the more important question of salvation is, Do you feel safe? Do you feel that you can go out into the community and participate and go to work and go to school and drive the streets in your own neighborhood without fear that you will be killed where you stand or where you run or where you sleep? Can we create a community that is safe for black bodies? Can we create a world that is hospitable and equitable for all people, no matter what their race or color or ethnicity might be. I think that is a pressing and urgent question for us in these times, because I don't know about you, but to me, it has become increasingly and incredibly crystal clear that while Jesus became poor so that we might become rich, There is an entire community of people in the United States who we made poor so that we could become rich. To be Christian and to be white at this time in our nation's history, I think, means that we must be willing to pour ourselves out to right those wrongs and to make those injustices just again. And so I want to leave you with that note and with that challenge. Today, I want this to be the beginning of a dialogue, the beginning of a conversation for our church at the Oceanside Sanctuary, for how it is that we as followers of Christ can begin to grapple with the injustices of racial violence and racial hatred and racial inequality in the United States. We're a small church in a small community, but I refuse to believe that we can't have an impact on this problem if we have the courage to step forward and take responsibility for asking difficult questions about how we can make things right. I want to invite you in your comments today to go ahead and write in your comments on Facebook or on YouTube. What are some of the things that you have learned as a person of privilege? What are some of the things you have learned that can be helpful in beginning to make right the racial inequalities in our country. If you don't know the answer to that question, if you don't have experiences in that regard, then please don't feel like you have to write anything. But if you have learned anything about racial inequality in the United States, if you you have learned anything about about making peace between different ethnic groups in the United States and bringing justice to these kinds of situations, then I wanna ask that you would share 
those resources. I want to ask that you would share those books that you've read uh, or those speakers that you've learned from or those workshops that you've attended. I want us as a church to begin to gather the resources we need to become a genuinely anti-racism and pro-reconciliation church. On that note, I want to invite you just to pray with me as we close up this time and ask the Lord to go with us today. Father God, we just thank you. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Christ, we are grateful for you, for your teaching, for your work, for your example. And we pray today that you would give us the courage as people of privilege to step forward into the difficult work of reconciling ourselves to those who are less privileged than we are, who have been oppressed by people like us and the systems that have benefited us. And we wanna pray that you would give us the courage and the strength and the wisdom to step into becoming a church, becoming a community of faith who has the courage and the resources to, to make a difference for racial justice in our communities. We pray all this in Jesus' name.